I wanted to start with a, a little story about um, about a book that was saved after the great library at Alexandria was burned in 48 BC. The book was not uh, particularly valuable to anybody. So a poor man came and bought the book for a few copper coins. He also didn't think it was very interesting, although something inside of the book was very interesting. There was a piece of parchment attached to one of the pages that had the secrets of the mythological touchstone. The touchstone was a pebble that could turn any uh, metal into pure gold. So obviously if you were in possession of the touchstone, you could transform your life into a wealthy one. So the book had this little parchment with the secrets of the touchstone, including its location. It said that it was on a particular shore on the Black Sea. So the poor man sold his few possessions and he bought a few supplies and he made his, his way to the Black Sea to look for the touchstone. And it said that it would be among thousands and thousands of other pebbles that looked exactly like it. But he would be able to find it or the seeker would be able to find it because all the other pebbles are cold and the touchstone has a warm energy to it. So when you pick it up, you'll know by how it feels and the warmth that it radiates. So the man arrives at the Black Sea and he starts picking up a few pebbles and they're cold and he drops it and he picks up another one that's cold and he drops it and he's looking in both directions and he sees this endless bank of pebbles that look all the same. And he's thinking, I gotta come up with some kind of strategy, otherwise I'm probably gonna be picking up the same pebble hundreds of times when I'm looking for this. So he decides he'll pick up a pebble, and if it's cold, he'll immediately throw it into the sea. That way he won't pick it up again. And he'll spend as much time as he can each day going through pebbles. So at morning, he starts, and he picks up pebble after pebble after pebble. Picks it up, it's cold, throws it into the sea. Picks it up, cold, throws it into the sea. He spent a whole day, morning till night, like this, and then a week, and then a month, and then a year, and then three years, and then finally, one morning, he reaches down, picks up a pebble, and it's warm, and he throws it into the sea. <laughs> and throws it way out into sea and it's too late because he had already followed through with his habit that he had developed over the course of three plus years. And so that's the end of the story, but it introduces the concept of habit and the force of habit. In this story, though, the touchstone, the pebble, is a metaphor for the heart, the heart of the individual. In most cases, our heart is cold. It's closed off. It's not open yet. But the touchstone is warm. So when our heart is warm, it's, warm means compassionate, kind, open to serving others and and helping in the present moment. 
then our heart is the touchstone. It's the one out of thousands that can truly transform anything it comes in contact with into gold, into a treasure. Which reminds me of a, of a quote by Rumi about finding treasure. He says, if necessary, carve a friend out of stone and realize that your inner sight is blind and try to see a treasure in everyone. So, like Michelangelo, who could see the statue inside a slab of stone, it's not about, building treasure is not about adding, it's about taking away, removing, to reveal something within. And that's what the spiritual journey or the mindful journey is really all about. It's about shedding and discarding what's uh, extraneous to get to what's essential. So we're going to talk about this force of habit and we're going to talk about the anatomy of a habit, both externally in things we can observe and also internally in the brain. And then we'll talk a little bit about how to change habits and how to get that science to work toward, for our benefit, to change our habits or to break habits or to develop new habits that we want to last. So in the book, The Power of Habit, the uh, New York Times business writer, Charles Duhigg, says that there's three, uh, three aspects or three parts to a habit. It's the, there are three R's, reminder, routine, and reward. He calls them cue, routine, and reward. And what this means is that we see something in our environment or we encounter something in our environment and it triggers a response in us. That behavior is the routine. That's actually the part that we call a habit, what we actually do. But it becomes a habit because there's some kind of reward. The brain gets some sort of pleasure or benefit and that's what completes that circuit and makes it a pattern. So when we understand these three components, we can really unlock a lot of the mystery of how habits work, those three simple components. Charles describes in his book a habit that he had every day of eating a cookie at three o'clock in his office, um, in his building in New York. So the cue was three o'clock rolls around and he habitually gets up, goes to the elevator, and goes up to the cafeteria and purchases a cookie and hangs out there for about 10-15 minutes and then comes back to his desk. Well, it's a small habit, but it's in, it's, it has its impact because if you think of that cookie having like maybe 200 calories, let's say, and he does it every day, that's a thousand calories a week, that's 4,000 calories a month, or like two, almost two days worth of meals of caloric intake in cookies per month. So it adds up. So he tries to dissect his habit and he recognizes that at three o'clock he gets this trigger and then there's an impulse to go upstairs, get the cookie. And then he sees what his routine is, and, um, and the reward, obviously, is the cookie. But it's not the only reward, 
because he goes up to the cafeteria where there's some of his colleagues and he chats with them for a while. So he also gets some social interaction, some social benefit. And he realizes that that is the real reward that he's seeking. By three o'clock, he's starting to get antsy and bored at his desk. And what he really wants is to break away and go connect with other people. The cookie is just an excuse to go do something around others and talk to other people. So the reward isn't really that he's hungry. The reward is that he gets a break from the monotony at his desk and connects with other people. When he realizes what his real reward is, he's able to break his habit. Just trying to resist the urge at three o'clock was too much. Some days he could do it, some days he would fail, which led him to feel like, you know, maybe I just don't have the willpower to make changes and then I should just forget about it and just have the cookie. But when he recognized how the habit loop worked, he was able to change the reward. So in the end, at three o'clock, he gets up and he goes to a different location where there's people, but there's no cookie. So he continues with his habit, but he changes the routine just slightly. And then he gets the same reward, but without the negative consequence of continuing to have this unnecessary caloric intake. So that is the anatomy of a habit. And there are some things happening in the brain that propel this, uh, this pattern in human beings. It involves three parts of the brain specifically that I want to talk about because I'm no expert in this, but I know a little bit about a few parts of the brain that I'll share with you. And I'll try to break it down into the simplest terminology just so that we can have a little bit of insight and know how we can make this work for our benefit. But there are a lot of other parts in the brain. Obviously, lots of centers in the brain communicate with each, with each other to do anything. But to simplify it, there's three areas that I want to highlight and we'll pay a little more attention to and go into a little more detail about. And these centers and other centers are talked a lot more in depth in a book called The Upward Spiral, if you're interested, by Dr. Alex Korb, who really breaks down a lot of neuroscience in a simple way. And that book is about reversing depression by having more insight into how the brain works and to use that to our advantage to reverse some of the habits that lead us down. So one, one area is called the prefrontal cortex. That is the most modern part of the brain. It's a part of the brain that's more developed in human beings and differentiates our brains from a lot of other mammals. Although other mammals have prefrontal cortex, um, it's not as developed as it is in human beings. And this area of the brain is known as the executive decision-making center of the brain. It's involved with purposeful action and intention and certain decision-making. The other area is called the striatum. This is an ancient processing center that's deep in the brain and is shared by other mammals. But it's the area of the brain that's involved with reward, pleasure, instinct, emotion, learning, and routine. This part of the brain really has little to do or nothing to do with morality or rationality. 
it's not even conscious. Consciousness, the awareness of what we do, happens in the higher parts of the cortex. So that's why, <clears throat> to a great extent, when we talk about the behaviors of, mammal, of other mammals, other animals, we don't really describe it as moral or immoral, right? In most cases, we would say it's amoral, which means it's not in regard to morality at all. It has to do with what? Instinct. We talk about animals operating a lot more on instinct. Therefore, it has nothing to do with morality. Well, we are also mammals, and when our prefrontal cortex is on sleep mode, as it often is, for our efficiency. But when it's on sleep mode, we're operating more in the striatum, in two parts of the striatum. The dorsal striatum, which just means upper. Dorsal means upper, so that's just another fancy way to confuse people who don't know about science. Instead of just saying upper, it's dorsal. And then the ventral, or lower, part of the striatum, which is known as the nucleus accumbens. The dorsal, the upper part, is associated with routine. The lower part is associated with impulse or pleasure. So most of our habits, especially our bad habits, can be divided into two categories, impulses and routines. Some of the habits that we have don't require or don't involve impulse at all. They're just the way we always do things. Example would be how I brush my teeth, or how I floss my teeth, or how I get dressed in the morning. It isn't happening because of any particular desire or urge. It's happening because I've done it that way countless times. The other week, I was hiking, and I tripped on a chain fence when I wasn't being mindful, and I fell sharply, like really fast, and because I was walking fast and my back foot caught on it, and I flew forward and put my hands out in front of me on a gravel path, and all these rocks jammed into my palms, and my hands immediately started bleeding. And my left hand is, is healing up now, but it was bandaged up really good, or after I cleaned it, I bandaged it up. And the next time I was flossing my teeth, I couldn't put the floss around the same two fingers that I normally do. I normally put the floss around these two fingers, and with this thumb, I guide it around the teeth, okay? And I realized I go from here to here on top, then I come back here and I go this way, then I come down and I go this way, and then I go this way. And I do it exactly that way with every tooth, every single day for probably years and years and years. And when I had to put the floss around these two fingers and guide it with this thumb, I couldn't do it. I had to use my prefrontal cortex, which is involved with purposeful, intentional action and decision-making. I had to decide how I wanted to use this thumb. I essentially had to relearn that behavior. And it was frustrating. Because normally I can be thinking about my commute to work or music or a song that I'm working on or the website that I'm building. I can think about a million other things. I can think about everything except flossing. And that's what we do when we talk about being unmindful. We're totally elsewhere. And the reason we're totally elsewhere is because our striatum, specifically our dorsal striatum, 
allows us to perform that function out of routine and not think about it. To the tune of 50% of all our behaviors. 50% of all our behaviors are happening through processes in the dorsal striatum which do not require our conscious awareness. Because if all of our actions required decisions, we would burn out so quickly. We would get so tired and so exhausted because to use the prefrontal cortex for decision-making takes a tremendous amount of RAM. It's like opening a ton of websites and trying to play a bunch of videos at the same time. It starts jamming up. So what happens is our, our brain works more efficiently to go into different power-saving modes so that our prefrontal cortex doesn't have to make a decision every time we need to do something. It wears grooves in the striatum so that we can do it without thinking about it, and then we have our higher conscious awareness available to do other things. So if you have ever, if you can recall a time when you were making a decision about a very ordinary thing, for example, gas is getting low in my car, let's say, and I'm driving up towards a gas station. Should I stop or should I wait till tomorrow? I have enough to come by here tomorrow. I'm kind of tired. Maybe I should just go home, fill up tomorrow. Now I'm in the decision-making mode of the prefrontal cortex. And very quickly, I'm getting tired and frustrated and worn out. Why can't I just make a decision? I should, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And we start to use a lot of processing power. So our brain knows that this is exhausting and it tries to eliminate a lot of decisions by creating grooves in the dorsal striatum that we can follow routinely. Now some of these routines are fine. Some of these routines like brushing your teeth every morning are totally fine. They're still based on cues, however. Cue, routine, and reward. The reward is my mouth is clean and I feel fresh. But if you change the cues, everything might change. So for example, if, on, if I'm on vacation, I might not floss. Lots of times when I'm on tour, I don't brush my teeth or floss. I know it's gross. But I might be sleeping in the van. I might be sleeping in a tent. I might not do, be doing other hygiene. I might be driving all night long and not sleeping at all. Some nights, there have been many nights where we have a concert, finish the concert at one in the morning or two in the morning, and the next destination is like four hours away, and there's a 6 a.m. television performance. So there's no bed, there's no sleep. We just drive there go for the television show, then go to breakfast, and then you haven't done hygiene, then you haven't brushed your teeth, and then you're out of your routine. Or I'm staying at a hotel, I'm in the hotel, checked in, laying down to go to bed, and then I remember, oh yeah, I gotta brush my teeth. Oh, but my toothbrush is in my toiletry bag in the back of the van, down in the parking lot, 10 floors below. So you think I'm gonna go get it? <laughs> Probably not and my routine is disrupted. So what does this mean? This means that if you want to change a habit or break a habit, it's not the best idea to try to keep everything the same and just use willpower, which is how a lot of people start to try to break a habit. 
Everything's the same, same cues are there. It's like when Charles was trying to not have the cookie at three o'clock, but everything's the same. Three o'clock rolls around, he's in the same place, he knows where the cookie is, now he's just trying to use willpower, and ultimately he fails. So if we really want to help ourselves using the science of our brain, we want to change the cues, change the triggers. So in his book, he says one of the best times to change a habit is on vacation. So like when I was on tour, my habits are breaking down or changing because all the visual cues are different. So if you want to quit smoking, if you want to get up at a different time, if you want to eat differently or not eat something that you normally eat or give up a particular drink or junk food, you can start when you're somewhere else for a week or two because the same triggers aren't going to be there. So you can easily abandon the routine because the, the habit loop is already disrupted. With a couple weeks of not doing that habit, you might have started the momentum necessary to maintain it when you come back. Most people are looking at their phones habitually, like every few minutes or, or even more frequently. And it's contributing to insomnia. There's an insomnia epidemic now. And part of it is because we keep looking at the phone. Or one of the last things we do at night is we look at our phone, we check an email, we look at a news feed. And, and we intend to maybe do it for a minute or two. And then all of a sudden, another hour has passed of us reading articles and watching videos and things like that. So why do we do it? Well, there is a, there is a cue with our phone one of the cues is that we get notifications. So I personally had to turn off all of my notifications. I don't have any notifications. No email notification, no Facebook notification, no other social media notification. Because if I got the notification, my impulse would be to look. And the reward would be, oh, so-and-so liked my photo. <laughs> it feels good to have that little social connection for a moment. But it doesn't feel good to keep looking at my phone for to the tune of nine and a half hours a day like we talked about last month. On average, that's the amount of time an adult spends looking at a screen, nine and a half hours a day. And then I miss out on a lot of other things that are meaningful to me. So if I turn off the notifications, I'm removing some of the cues and I can make changes in that. Um, so the other thing we can do is to just decide with intention to remove the phone altogether at different times, to unplug, remove the cue, put it on airplane mode, have designated times when your phone can be on airplane mode, turn it down. You know, I don't keep my phone near me at night anymore. I put it on airplane mode and I don't um, have the time available to me anywhere in my room because I had the habit of looking at the time whenever I woke up. Whenever I'd wake up in the night to go to the bathroom or anything, or because I woke up from a dream, I would you know, habitually look at the time, and then if it's like two in the morning or three in the morning, I start thinking, I gotta get up in two hours. And that would create tension. Once I knew, okay, I only got a couple hours to sleep, it would be hard for me to fall back asleep. I gotta get at least two more hours or I'm gonna be a zombie tomorrow, then I'm struggling. 
Same thing in the beginning of the night. If I haven't fallen asleep yet and I just keep looking at the clock, it's like, now it's 11, now it's 12, now it's 1 a.m. Now I'm going to be a zombie no matter what. <laughs> and then I can't fall asleep. So part of that is we're creating a performance anxiety by the habit of continuously looking at the time and putting pressure on ourselves to perform at something that requires no specific effort whatsoever. Because once we're not trying to fall asleep, we can't stay awake, we fall asleep. When I'm trying to watch a movie, when you're trying to watch a movie with your significant other, they're always complaining that you fall asleep. They can't watch a movie with you. You're trying to read a book late at night, and all of a sudden you're falling asleep in, in between words. You're falling asleep in, in the middle of the book. So when we're not trying to fall asleep, we can easily do it. When we're trying to fall asleep, we struggle. So give up the habit of looking at the clock and turning it into a performance. Even if you wake up in the middle of the night, do we need to know the time? All we need to know is my alarm hasn't gone off. So I have more time and no pressure because maybe I still have the full night or maybe I have one more hour. I don't know and I'm not interested anymore. All I know is it's not time. And I feel no pressure and I can always fall immediately back to sleep. So this is an example of how we can change cues around reorient the cues in our environment to work towards our advantage to break habits. So I mentioned there's two areas of the striatum involved with routines. The lower part is known as the nucleus accumbens and all we need to know about that is that is a pleasure center. The upper part is a routine center. And these three areas of the brain are communicating with each other to decide on how things get done. But at least 50% of the time, the prefrontal cortex is not involved. We could kind of think of it as a, as a type of Congress. You got your conservative branch, which is involved with routine. So how we always done things. Then you got a progressive area that's pushing you towards new pleasure and more pleasure. If a pleasure becomes a routine, it no longer involves the pleasure center, oddly enough. This is why an addiction, after some time, the person with an addiction is saying, I don't even get any pleasure out of this anymore, but I keep doing it. Why? Because after it's worn a groove in the brain, it gets bumped over to the dorsal striatum, routine. So after some time of a habit becoming an addiction, it doesn't even involve the pleasure center anymore. It doesn't need the pleasure center anymore to keep doing it. And that's why after some time, an addiction that started out as a very pleasurable activity that got somebody high, no longer gets them high. It gives them a little boost based on their routine, but they're operating almost entirely below their original baseline after a disease of addiction progresses longer term. And depending on the drug or the addiction, that can happen in a shorter time frame. With something like alcohol, it could happen over years. With something like heroin, it could happen over the course of months. Which is why, you know, some drugs are very dangerous because this, this habit loop takes effect very quickly and it moves from pleasurable experience to a routine experience. So, let's say I go into a store, I look at a candy bar, the kind that is calling to me and it's chocolate, because I love chocolate. 
So I go over, I grab the candy bar for the first time, buy it, I unwrap it, and I take a bite of it. At that moment, dopamine is flooding my ventral striatum, the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure center, and a deep impression is made. So that next time I'm in the store, or in my case, it's uh, a smoothie place where there's the chocolate, uh, the chocolate acai bar. <laughs> so it's healthy, but delicious. <laughs> so the next time I see that bar, dopamine is coming when I just hear the wrapper noise. Before the dopamine came, when I actually tasted it and realized this is pleasurable. Next time around, dopamine is flooding my nucleus accumbens the lower part of the striatum when I hear the rapping sound, the tearing sound. And then after that, the dopamine is coming when I see the bar across the room in the store. So the dopamine is involved with pleasure, but dopamine doesn't necessarily translate to pleasure. Dopamine is involved with motivation also. So I see the candy bar or the chocolate bar and dopamine comes and that pushes me to the next step, which is to buy the bar, which gives, gives me the impetus to the next step, which is to eat the bar. And then eventually it wears a groove in the brain and it becomes managed by the upper part. So it starts in this lower part and it comes up to the higher part of the striatum, which is still deep in the brain. And now it's a routine. Now it's a routine and it doesn't involve pleasure anymore. I may still get some pleasure, but I don't need the, that pleasurable impulse to keep up with the habit. So there's many things like this. So we can use this habit loop and the cues and the reward uh, to make some changes. I heard the other day from a patient that um, junk food is my boyfriend. <laughs> so, okay, tell, tell me more about what that means. He said, well, <clears throat> Whenever I get lonely, I go for junk food. And so when I have the junk food, I, you know, I feel a little bit of my anxiety go down for a little bit. But it's not you know, a permanent cure, it's just a short fix. So I said, okay, so if we draw up your habit loop, the cue is something in your environment that triggers loneliness. The routine is you then go for the junk food, you eat the junk food, the reward is you get some pleasure because junk food gives you some immediate uh, pleasure. Longer term, it's not so healthy and it contributes to other problems and weight gain and more kinds of stress, but it completes the, the habit loop. So I said, well, the junk food isn't really giving you the reward of curing your hunger. The reward is some sort of relief from the loneliness. So if we replace that habit with one that can also give the reward of treating the loneliness, we can break that habit. And so what she did was, every time she felt lonely, she connected with somebody. She had like a, a friend person or a point person that she could contact that could be there for her in that way to talk and offer support. So similarly in, um, 12-step programs for recovery from addiction like alcohol addiction, the, the support group, the fellowship, is, is there to break up the habit loop. One of the reasons why this works is because 
the habit loop is changing. For instance, somebody feels lonely, feels stress, and their instinct or their urge then is in the, is in the striatum, which would be to go to, towards their worn routines. And that might be drinking. But if instead they go to a meeting, then they are around a different, a different social cue, a different kind of cue. They get the reward of support and connection that lowers the stress, and then they reorganize that habit loop over time. And that's how, that's how that works in a nutshell. Um, but it's interesting because if we're, if we're not aware of that, then we think that we don't need it. And that's why so many patients or clients will say, you know, I don't think I need that. I just need to stay motivated and I am motivated right now. But then that emo uh, motivation wears, wears out. Why? Because motivation can be there when the prefrontal cortex is working and is, is active. The prefrontal cortex is where we get inspiration, motivation, intention, purpose. But if we get stressed out, the prefrontal cortex shuts down and emotional centers take over and instinctive centers take over. Which is why whenever we're stressed, we naturally start to go towards our bad habits, which might be eating junk food, isolating, drinking, abandoning your exercise programs and things like that, laziness, procrastination because the prefrontal cortex is shut down and it loses this debate between the dorsal striatum and the nucleus incumbens, accumbens. So essentially these three centers are saying things to each other like, well, this is what's good for me in the long run. That's the prefrontal cortex. And the nucleus accumbens is saying, this is the thing that's gonna give you the most relief, the most pleasure here and now. And then the dorsal striatum, the upper part of this center is saying, but this is how we've always done it. So depending on our state of mind, one of those three centers is going to win. And at least 50% of the time, one of those lower centers is the decision-making process. And for the most part, that's totally fine and effective. But we need to check in once in a while to see if our routines are healthy. Why? Because a lot of our routines are based on how we did things in childhood. Many adults, most adults, eat very similar to the way they ate as a child. You know, if we're still eating, you know, bacon every day for breakfast and fried food and junk food and sodas at every meal, do you think it's because our prefrontal cortex is saying, this is what I really want to do. This is how I want to nourish my body. It's doing it because the dorsal striatum is saying, this is the way we've always done things around here, and we're not ready to make any changes. Well, how did that habit develop, and when did that habit develop? It de develops in childhood when the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. The prefrontal cortex takes until around 26 years old to be fully developed. So when we're getting frustrated with, our, with young people or children because they can't see the bigger picture or because they're saying, I don't got to think about when I have kids 
when parents say things like, when you have kids, you'll know what it's like. And they say, I, I don't even have to worry about that because that's so far into the future. Part of that is literally because they can't think about that because they don't have all of that capacity in the prefrontal cortex to think about the grand scheme of things and the bigger picture. That's not to say they can't. It's just, it just takes a little bit more special effort because it's not fully developed. Also, our metabolism is much more powerful as a child than it is as an adult. So, for me, eating three breakfasts in the morning when I was a football player and a, and a track athlete and a basketball player was totally fine, had no negative consequences. But as an adult, eating that same caloric intake doesn't work anymore. And now I have to find a way to break up that habit as an adult. Otherwise, it's no longer serving me. So we need to look at our routines. We need to take a step back and we need to do some self-analysis and to see how we do things. Once you bring awareness into anything you're doing, you change the game. You're changing the communication in the brain. If you're not aware, there's no communication between the prefrontal cortex and the other centers. And for the most part, this is done for efficiency and to save energy in the brain. But when we need to change our life, we have to bring awareness. Now keep in mind, awareness involves the prefrontal cortex, but it is not the same as decision making. Just being aware, I'm frustrated, is not the same as making a decision. Decision is a totally different type of activity in the brain. This happens in the same center, but it takes a lot more processing power. To be aware actually energizes the prefrontal cortex, and it builds it, and it grows new connections, and it strengthens your ability to remember, to make decisions, to learn new things, to figure things out, to find your way in life, to solve life's bigger questions, it gives you the power to do all those things. So awareness is meditation. It's a type of meditation. It's a type of Zen. Zen is about just being aware of what's happening in the present moment. Once we become aware, your prefrontal cortex is empowered and it's automatically sending impulses and signals and chemicals to the lower centers to subdue their activity. So one of the things we we would tell somebody with anxiety is to just simply be aware. First be aware of the thoughts that you're having, of the feeling that you're having, of the urge that you're having. If you're not aware, you're caught up in it. You're caught up in the wave and you will just go with that wave, which is based on impulse, survival, emotion, instinct, the way we always done things. To just bring awareness changes everything. So we can do this from time to time with our ordinary things. That's why mindfulness is prescribed in very ordinary activities. Try to be mindful when you're brushing your teeth. Try to be mindful when you're taking a shower. Try to be mindful when you're driving to work or eating a meal. So part of this is just paying more attention to how you're doing it. Then you can start to see spontaneously if this works or doesn't work. And then you can use the habit loop to find ways to make changes. So let's say I'm paying attention to how I eat. I'm more mindful on a, at a particular meal. And I realize 
I don't chew my food enough. I realize I habitually shove food into my mouth the way I did as a kid. And I chew with my mouth open. And it's not super pleasant or it's not super effective. Because I eat too much, I eat too large of particles of food. And that's what's contributing maybe to my indigestion or my acid reflux. Because if I swallow my food without chewing it enough, my stomach doesn't have teeth. All it can do is release more acid. So it releases more acid to try to break down the food further because I didn't chew it enough in my mouth. And then I'm more susceptible to acid reflux, to gas, to you know other indigestion, other types of uh, digestive issues. Just chewing your food more can relieve you from a lot of those problems. So if we want to get better at this, we have to pay attention. We can set our fork down or utensil down in between each bite. Now we're mindful, now we're aware. Now I'm paying attention to the next moment that I want to pick up the fork again and take another bite. So now I'm engaged in intentional action. Or I can put the fork in my left hand because that is totally different. Totally different cue now. The fork in my right hand cues up everything perfectly for my striatum to take over and do everything out of routine. If I put it in my left hand, I cannot rely on well-worn grooves in the deep parts of my brain because I've never done it with my left hand. Just like I never flossed my teeth with my left thumb and I had to totally think about how to do it. So then I could think about whether I'm doing it effectively or not. Once my fork is in the left hand, I can do it out of intention, which is the prefrontal cortex. So I can bring this type of awareness to anything. I can mix up the way that I get dressed. When I'm on vacation, I get dressed in a totally different way. I can see it now. If I'm in my room at home, I get dressed the exact same way. And I routinely and habitually go to the same drawer, grab my socks, grab the next thing, grab the next thing. It's all out of habit and I don't even think about it. But once I'm on the road, then it's totally different. I don't even know how it's gonna go down. But it involves a lot more intention and awareness because I can't rely on those old patterns. So that's how you can make changes or break a habit. But sometimes we want to start something new. Like at the beginning of the year, we want to create a new habit, a healthy habit. And in January, the gyms are full. And in February, they're back to <laughs> the way they always are, mostly empty. So how do we get a new habit to stick? Well, we can use the habit loop and the knowledge about these centers in the brain to piggyback off an old habit. And there's a researcher at Stanford um, who talks about tiny habits. One of the reasons we fail to make these changes is because the change is too big. When the change is big, we need a lot of motivation to do that. But motivation is not something that we have unlimited access to. Most people think that they can just grab motivation and maintain that motivation, and then it doesn't work. Motivation waxes and wanes all the time. It's not something that we can count on. So if we take a tiny habit 
And we think about when can I do this after something else? So I build a habit by saying, when I do this, after that, I will do this. So in the case of this researcher at Stanford, he said, whenever I pee, I'll do two push-ups after. So when I flush the toilet, I'll do two push-ups. So, however, depending on how much water he's drinking that day, that's how many push-ups he's doing. But very soon, he's doing three push-ups. And then he's doing 70 to 100 push-ups a day without trying to. Because he already has the habit of flushing the toilet. And he added a tiny habit to that. Flush the toilet, hop down, two push-ups. And from there, he's able to build. Now, if he had this new habit of, I'm going to do 100 push-ups a day, I just got to make time for it, he would have failed. He would have failed. And he was failing until he made it a tiny habit that he could quickly build upon. So this is called the science of tiny habits. You might think, gosh, it would be really good if I could meditate like an hour or two a day. I really should make time for that. And you try, and then you do it once or twice, and then you inevitably go back to not doing it. But what if I said, take up the tiny habit of meditating one minute a day. What if we did that? What if every day we challenged ourselves to make one minute of silence, to enjoy one minute of silence where we're watching our breath very deeply? Don't you think we could do that? Even if we had forgotten to do it, we could still do it. But if I had the goal of meditating an hour or two a day and come 10 o'clock at night, I'm laying in bed and I go, crap, I forgot to meditate. I'm not going to do it. I'm not even going to do part of it because there's no way I can complete it. I'd be way too tired tomorrow. Plus, I got to do some laundry still, so. When you're trying to meditate, it's like everything else becomes clear what you need to do <laughs> other than meditation. <laughs> And when you're doing everything else, it becomes clear that you need to meditate more. <laughs> so, one minute. But wherever you're at with your meditation practice or your mindfulness practice, let's take the next tiny step. So, piggyback off what you're already doing. Use whatever you want to add to your life and add it to something that you already routinely do. That doesn't take any special effort. You're already going to do that. When I was in India, I learned about tongue scraping. You know, tongue scrapers. I, I never used a tongue scraper as a kid. I never even heard of that. But over there, they do it religiously, at least where I was. So I thought, you know, I should do that too. And I did it. I did it in the morning when I do all the other oral hygiene. So it didn't take any particular effort to remember to do it. It's just do that along with the flossing and the rinsing and the brushing, and now add this, because I'm already doing all those other things, so I just add one more. And it immediately stuck. It didn't take any special effort to remember to do that or to force myself to do that. If that was something that I was going to do at some random time in the day, then I would have failed. So this is the science of tiny habits. Don't make the change larger than you have sustained motivation for. Make it so easy that you don't even need motivation to do it. And find whatever that is, you know. 
Eventually, one minute of meditation is, is way too easy. And you can do two minutes or three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. And build, build it that way. So why do I say do meditation and build it from one minute up? Because the science shows that when you meditate for around 30 minutes a day, that you build your prefrontal cortex. And ordinarily, after the prefrontal cortex becomes fully developed at around 26 years old, that's when it starts to deteriorate. What a tragedy. It took all that time just to grow, and now it starts to decline. And by the time we're around 50 years old, it's significantly deteriorated, which is why it feels really hard to learn new things, and we start forgetting where we set our keys down and stuff like that. It's because this executive center is starting to diminish a little bit. However, in meditators, it doesn't diminish. It doesn't deteriorate. It stays consistent over 25 years, from 25 to 50. There's no decline. And scientists at Harvard were wondering, is that because of something else? Maybe people who meditate have a special diet or because they're vegetarian or more plant-based, they're getting some kind of nutrient that maintains their prefrontal cortex. So they decided to take people who had never meditated, scan their brains with MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, so get a picture of what the prefrontal cortex looks like, have them practice meditation for eight weeks, and then they'll measure it again. And what they found was after eight weeks of mindfulness-based meditation, that the prefrontal cortex got larger, so it grew. This is called neuroplasticity, which means whatever we do habitually grows our brain in that way, which is why string players in orchestras have larger areas in their brain that uh, control the motor functioning of their left hand. Left hand does all the dexterous movements on the fretboard, and that part of the brain is larger. And it would get larger if we took up playing a string instrument. So that's called neuroplasticity. So when you meditate, you grow the area of your brain that's associated with all the higher things. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What do I truly want out of life? How can I be fulfilled? These are all questions for the prefrontal cortex, for the executive center of the brain. That's why when people meditate, things become clear. What to do becomes clear. You don't have to do a lot of decision making when you have simple awareness. Awareness itself subdues the impulsive parts of the brain and the right action becomes apparent. This is why in the ancient manuscript called the Tao Te Ching of China, it says, can you wait until your mud settles and you can take a right decision or the right decision becomes apparent on its own? Which means, can you step back and be mindful and meditative through awareness, let the dust settle of your lower centers, which is impulse, urges, cravings, anger, fear, and the 
the impulse to avoid, to fight, to drink, to have junk food, to procrastinate, to be lazy, whatever it may be. Can you wait with awareness till that settles down and then the right action becomes clear? So if we meditate, we build the center of our brain and it becomes easier to take better decisions and to be more intentional, more purposeful, and to find more fulfillment in life. So I'll conclude with a little story from Tolstoy that sort of illustrates how to find the right thing to do because naturally when we're trying to figure out our habits, it's the question may come up, well, how do we even know what good habits are? How do we figure out how we want to live? The simple answer to this is to have values. Tune into your values and change your values. At the beginning of the year, I had a few values in mind. And because I picked those values, my behavior looked different than it did in previous years. I created with my bandmates a new album called Frequency of Love. I went on new adventures. I did new things with new special people. But I wouldn't have done those things if I had a different set of values for that year. And I think next year I'll have something different in mind. This is how we can break out of rote patterns. We're doing things the way we've always done them for years and years and years and years. But if we pick a new set of values, that's going to influence how we want to set up our routines. Then we'll look into our routines and see, does this serve the value? And when I have to make decisions, I'll consult those three values. My three values are love, creativity, and adventure, and I have a decision to make. I just look at those three values. Well, does making this decision honor one of those three values? If it doesn't, then I won't do it. And I can use my prefrontal cortex in that way. But anyways, in this story by Tolstoy, he illuminates sort of this, this challenge of figuring out the right way to live. So it starts with a king. Once upon a time there was a king, and the king had three questions in his mind. And he believed that if he could find the answer to these three questions, he would know how to live. And the three questions were, one, when, when is the best time to do a particular thing? So when's the best time to start a thing? And two, who are the important people to work with? And three, what is the best thing to do at all times? So one is, when is the right time to start something? Two is, who are the people that you should be most attentive to or who are the most important people to work with? And thirdly, what is the best thing to do in all times? So those were his three questions. And he put a decree out to the whole kingdom that whoever can answer these three questions to his satisfaction would receive a great reward. So then people came from all over the place to try to give an answer to the king. So for this first question, when is the best time to do something? When is the right time to do a particular thing? So one person said, one smart person said, well, what you need to do is you need to schedule all your activities. You need to consecrate every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year 
to particular activities and then you need to adhere to it. And then you'll know the best time to do each particular thing because you already have it planned out. And somebody else comes in and says, no, 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 that's, that'll never work. You can't plan out everything because there will be unexpected things that come up and you'll have to deal with those. So you can't say that all the best things, the best time to do everything can be pre-planned. And somebody else said, well, you could, but you'd need to know, you'd need to know how to, what's coming, how, how to prepare for that. So you need to take the counsel of magicians and soothsayers and astrologers. And then somebody else said, no, all you need to really do is just abandon all your bad habits. Give up all of your uh, wasteful indulgences and just be attentive. Or somebody said that, you know, but the king wouldn't know all the times when what's a bad habit, what's a good habit. So he should have a council of the wise. Develop a council and you consult them and that's how you know how to do the right thing. And then somebody else argued that saying, yeah, but some, some decisions don't have en uh, involve enough time to consult this council, so that won't work. So like this, they all disagreed and the king was dissatisfied. Second question, who are the important people to be involved with, most important people to work with? Some people said that you should work with the counselors, like the advisors. Somebody else said, no, 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 you should, the most important people to work with as the king are the mystics, the monks, the priests, the holy people. Someone else said, yeah, that's nice, but they don't know anything about military strategy. So ultimately, your ultimate responsibility is to protect your people and the kingdom. So you're, the most important people would be the warriors and the uh, military strategists. And still other people said, you know, doctors or physicians. And like this, they argued again. And the king was not satisfied with any of their answers. The third one, what is the right thing to do in all times? And some people said that it's religion. Always make sure that you're devotional, doing some type of worship. Somebody else said, no, no, no. Always make sure you have the art of war in mind and that you're always strategizing and keeping your enemies close to you and staying two steps ahead of them. Another other person said science. You always need to be engaged in the scientific method. Make sure that you're always adhering to the principles of science and always trying to get to the heart of things scientifically. So they all disagreed again. And the king was dissatisfied with all of these answers. So he decides to take matters into his own hands and seek out the answers from a hermit. There was a hermit who lived in the forest up on a mountain and he had heard that he was enlightened and truly wise. So he takes a few bodyguards, a couple attendants, and they make their way out to this mountain, to this forest. But they tell the king, you know, I don't think he, he will receive anybody who's not a common person. He has no interest in rich people, famous people, wealthy people. So you should probably disguise yourself as a peasant. 
So the king changes his clothes and he, and he puts on the garb of, a, of the common man. And he comes to the mountain and he tells his attendants, you guys wait here at this hill. He's like, I'll go alone the rest of the way. And the king starts to hike up this slope. And then he comes to the hut of the hermit. And the hermit is an old man and he is digging a garden in front of his home in the middle of the of the heat of the of the midday midday sun so he's struggling because he's old and with every shove of the spade he's breathing heavily the king approaches him and he says dear hermit dear wise man i have uh, three questions to put to you that I hope you can answer. One, what is the best time to do a particular thing? Two, who are the most important people to work with? And three, uh, what is the best thing to do at all times? The hermit doesn't say anything, but he taps him on the shoulder and continues digging. So the king's a little confused and he's watching for a little bit and then he says hey that looks kind of that looks kind of hard do you mind if I help you I'll do a little digging and the hermit says thank you yeah I'll take a little rest hands him the shovel and he sits down and leans back and the king starts digging the rows for his garden so he digs one row digs two holes two rows and the king starts in his own head going what what is this? What do I need? What do I got to do to get this hermit to answer my questions? Well, maybe if I just help for a little while, I'll win his favor. So he digs for a little while. After he finishes a couple rows, he says, So what do you think? Can you answer those three questions for me? And the hermit says, Hey, this is hard work digging, and it looks like you're getting tired now. Why don't we switch back? You sit down for a little bit and I'll dig the next few rows. And the king says, no, 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 I got this. I can keep going for a while. Um, the king is much younger than the hermit. So the hermit says, okay, okay. And the king goes back to focusing on digging the ditches, or digging the rows, and forgets about his questions for a little bit. And he digs, and then the sun is starting to set. And when the sun's starting to set, the king goes, all right, I'm going to try to get these questions answered one last time or I'm going to go. He says, look, what are the answers to these three questions? And if you don't know, that's okay. Or if you can't answer them or you won't answer them, just let me know and I'll make my way home and I'll leave you alone. And the hermit says, look, do you see that man running at you behind you? The king turns around and there's a man with a white beard running through the forest at, at the king. And He's startled, and, and he's looking at the man, and then when he, before he gets to him, he collapses, and he falls unconscious. So the king rushes over to him, and the hermit follows him, and he can see that he's bleeding. So he removes his shirt, and he has a deep gash on his side from a sword or from a dagger. So the king just starts to uh, help the man out of compassion. He takes off his own shirt, and he dries up the blood and ties it around the wound. But in a few minutes, his shirt is totally soaked with blood. So he takes the shirt off and he 
soaks it in a nearby stream and rinses it out and comes back and applies pressure to the wound again, ties it up, and like this, he keeps treating the wound until finally the man stops bleeding and eventually regains consciousness. Looking up at the king, he says, I'm thirsty, can you give me something to drink? So the king makes his way to the stream with a pitcher and he fills it up and he brings some fresh water to the man. And by now the sun has set and it's getting dark and it's starting to get cold. So the king carries the man into the home of the hermit with the help of the hermit. And they put him into the bed of the hermit after putting some ointment and some herbs on the wound the man falls asleep in the bed. And the king sits down and leans back on one of the walls and he falls asleep because he's tired from all the digging in the garden and from climbing the mountain and then from making all these trips back and forth from the stream to take care of the wounded stranger. And then he falls into a deep sleep and he wakes up after several hours and he's confused about where he is. He sees the sun rising over the mountain and illuminating the, the hut with this reddish gold color. And he looks around and he's wondering why he's here. Why did I come to this place? Why am I at this strange place? He looks over at the man in the bed and he realizes, oh yeah, this guy had some kind of wound and, and we were trying to save his life. And then he looks outside and he sees the hermit digging more rows and planting seeds also in the rows that they had dug yesterday. <coughs> then he goes, I got to get out of here. I must have fallen asleep and stayed here an extra day. <laughs> He's like, he looks at the, looks at the man in the bed who has, who also woke up and the man says to him, please forgive me, king. And the king says, I don't know you, what, what, what do I need to forgive you for? And he said, well, I had come here to kill you. You see, you may not know me, but I know you. In the last war, your men had killed my brother in battle and then seized my home and property and left me with nothing. So I vowed to avenge my brother's death and when I learned that you would be on this mountain alone to see the hermit, I thought that would be the perfect time to kill you. So I waited, and I waited, and you never came. So I finally came out from my ambush spot, and that's when I encountered your other attendants, and they stabbed me, and we got into a skirmish, but I escaped. And I escaped, and I ran up the hill to try to come to the hermit, because I figured, if he couldn't help me, nobody could help me, I was going to die. And I found you here still, and that's where I collapsed in front of you. But then you saved my life. You treated my wound and you stopped the bleeding and you carried me into, into this home and into the bed. So now I don't feel like I can kill you. So I ask for your forgiveness because I see what kind of person you really are. I see the, quali the quality of compassion in you and I don't have any desire to kill you. I want to make peace. And the king is overjoyed because it's a noble quality for the king to give, to show mercy, to give, uh, to, uh, to accept the plea of forgiveness. 
and to reconcile and to make peace with somebody before they die. So he accepts and he says, I'm also sorry that your brother died and I'm sorry that your property was seized. I'm going to send uh, supplies to you. I'm going to send what you need. I'm also going to send my royal physicians to care for you until you fully recovered. So like this, they make peace and the king goes on his way. And he decides to, to speak to the hermit one last time before he leaves. And he says, look, I want to know the answer to these three questions. I'm going to leave now, but can't you please, can't you please answer these three questions? And the hermit says, I've already given you the answer to three questions. And the king says, what do you mean? I don't understand. And he said, the first question, when was the best time, the right time? He says, the right time was when you were digging the rose. And he says, what do you mean the right time was when I was digging the rose? That if you weren't digging the rose, then you would have left. And if you had left, that man would have killed you. He said, the right person or the most important person was me. He said, because if, if you didn't tend to me and to this garden, then you also would have left and that man would have killed you. And the best thing to do is to help somebody. Help whoever that most important person is. And that was me, and you helped me, and that saved your life. But afterwards, the most important time was when you were treating the wound of your enemy. The most important person was your enemy. And the best thing to do was to help your enemy. So you see, King, the answer to your three questions are there. The right time is the present moment. The most important person is whoever you're with in the present moment. Because there's no guarantee that any human will have any other dealings with anyone else other than the person that they're presently dealing with. And the best thing to do in every moment is to try to make the other person's life better, to try to reduce their suffering or to show compassion or to help them achieve happiness in any way you can. So those are the answers to your question. And the king was satisfied and he was happy and he bowed to the hermit and he made his way back to his palace. So, like that, we can at least strive to, to live those three questions. To be present just means be aware. Activate the prefrontal cortex. Energize it. The most important people in your life are whoever you're with. No one else is as important as who you see in front of you. Because there's no guarantee that you'll ever see anybody else or deal with anyone else. And the third thing is to be compassionate to all living things and to try to reduce the suffering of everyone around you, to be helpful, to be useful, to be purposeful in whatever way is practical for you based on your capacity. Breathe in, more love, more peace. Breathe out, extend that to everyone around you in the room everyone in your life, everyone in the universe, 
Do we want our heart to be the cold pebble or the warm touchstone that transforms everything into gold, that treats everybody like a treasure by seeing the angel inside the stone? And this can be the beginning of your tiny habit, your one minute of mindfulness, and you can grow it from there.